All right, look me in the eye and tell me what you just heard, that next week we'll have one service at 11 o'clock. Okay, okay. I just want to, I'm going to do it like I do with my kids, because right, we did it at 11. We had, we're thinking about doing it at 10, but then I know, like, you know, the 9 o'clock people will be, you know, early, and then 11 o'clock people will be late, because nobody's going to really listen to the announcement. So that's for the people that come at 9. You can come here and realize when you didn't hear it or pay attention to it, you can go have breakfast and come back. And those that were coming at 11 will just be here anyway. So that, that, that's kind of how we, we're rolling with that. So my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Good morning. Uh, we are in a, let's see, we've got one more week in our Advent series uh, as we celebrate Christmas. I mean, we, we looked two weeks ago at the Advent of a Redeemer, uh, Advent meaning the coming, uh, coming of a Redeemer. Um, and we looked through the lens of the genealogy in Matthew 1. Uh, the week or last week, uh, we looked at the Advent of Emmanuel or God with us. And what does that mean? Uh, and, and the incarnation of, of Jesus as he came as a baby to show himself to us, how he is approachable. The previously unapproachable God, an unapproachable light from First Timothy 6, the holy God of the universe becomes approachable as a baby, even humble and possibly vulnerable even in appearance, right? And he was subject to hurt and pain and to sorrow. And yet like us, but that's not the whole story. And today we're moving into Matthew 2, where we expect the advent of a king. It's what we talk about today. But as a king, he's the ruler of nations. The earth is his possession. He is a powerful sovereign over all creation. And worship is due him. It's the picture of Psalms 2, um, kind of the, the ruler God. And so we have the approachability of God last week and this week, the transcendence or the all-powerful king, the great king today is what we're going to look at. Um, and so in thinking through that and how Christmas is so familiar and we get so used to it, we do it every year and the older we get, the more familiar it is. Um, I was reminded, and, and actually I did not ask for this. Who asks for a lesson on humility? Um, I, I did not, but I did receive one this week. I did. So I thought I'd tell you about it. Um, my kids, my, my boys share a room and they needed to get something out of the top of their closet. And so instead of asking me, because they're very independent, right, they have this uh, little bookshelf that's right next to the closet that they were going to drag in front of the closet and then proceed to climb on top of it and reach into the top, um, which is great. But our furniture in their room especially is, is not exactly quality. This was one of those uh, $15 uh, kind of a pressed board <laughs> bookshelves that had a lot of books on it. So the minute they pulled it, and, they, you know, it's been broken before. I've kind of duct taped it together. Um, it just collapsed into pieces, and so there's, I had to get a new bookshelf. And so I ran, you know, to Walmart and paid $17 for a, another one. I thought, I, I don't know how many times I've put these things together. You know, I'm just, I don't even, I don't need, the, I'm a man. I don't need the instructions. Just give me the, the stuff and the packet. I put it together. My wife was like, how long will that take you to put together? I'm like, mm, only 15 to 20 minutes. I'll be done. And so I, I get in there started. I even had my own tools and everything, right? So I'm putting it together. And uh, they come in, I'm like, I, I realized after I, I flipped, I thought, oh, when I flip it back over, it'll be fine. But what I did was I put it together upside down and like the, 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 the footing part is like on the top. And it, it was a, anyway, it was a, it was a disaster, but it was together. And I'd already taken the, the fake back where you had to put all the tacks in and there were like 30 tacks that I did. I'm like, I have to take that off. It looks fine. You know, I mean, it's, it's fine. Missy is functional. I mean, I'm about function, and she's like, that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so 
So anyway, it, it was just, it was really kind of a moment. And, and my, my six-year-old comes in and, and my, my 12-year-old, uh, both girls. And uh, Abby, my six, my Kate just goes, Dad, I said, don't say anything. Because she's about to inform me about how, how, how poorly constructed <laughs> this, this book, book, bookshelf is. And, and my six-year-old just says, Dad, you're not very good at building things, are you? And then my, my 12-year-old turns and says, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I was like, I know, I know. Look, it was, it was fairly embarrassing, uh, especially I know the process. I know what it should be like. I had the instructions, and I was so familiar with it that I missed the entire process. I messed it up. And so my point is that I think we do Christmas like that a lot. We just fall into the motions, and it just happens to us. We're not intentional. We, we don't think about it. And so what, what I hope you see today is that there is more going on at Christmas at the nativity than meets the eye. It's bigger than you realize. And so remember that Christmas is a declaration of war, right? It's a declaration of war on sin and death and Satan that was promised long ago in the Garden of Eden. It was promised by God himself in response to the serpent challenge to his authority. If you remember that, Genesis 3.15, and he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is, that is the prophecy of God speaking to the serpent in the garden. So three realities. Here are three points for today that we want to see out of Matthew 2. Number one, confirmation that Christ is king. Number two, the contrast between two kings. And then finally, the coming of a great king. So number one, verses one through three, God's people as we hear, have heard every week, are looking for a king to deliver them. In chapter 2, Jesus is actually born. So we go from chapter 1 in Matthew, and we move into chapter 2 where he's actually born. And God, the God-man enters real history in real time and, and, and real, as a real person in a real place. And when I say real, of course what I mean is that according to our understanding and our history, and what we can see and taste and touch, feel, smell, experience, right? It's no longer an, a concept. It's no longer a promise. It's no longer an invisible reality or something to hope for that divine nature has put on flesh and entered our world as one of us in every way. And we talked about that last week. So here's where Matthew, in the rest of two, uh, chapter 2, he quotes from minor prophets. First, we have Micah uh, from, from Micah chapter 5, verse In verse 6 here he says, and he's trying to confirm this new king. He says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you know, we've talked about Matthew and how uh, he understands Jewish culture and he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And so he quotes from the Old Testament time after time after time. He goes through the genealogy. He's like saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Here he quotes from Micah, where there's this ruler language. A ruler shall come from you and shepherding all of Israel, right? But who finds Jesus first? Is it Israel? No, not his own people. It's the ones, the ones that are supposedly looking for him don't even find him. It's the irony is that the magi, the wise men, find him first. Not God's people. And so we see from Matthew, without any help, the nations, those people that are groups of people groups that are outside of Israel are starting to come to Jesus already. This is Matthew's like, look, it's bigger than just 
Israel. It's bigger. The nations are coming. I don't need your help, but you get to be a part of it. You get to be. And so watch this. And so Matthew, by including this section, by the way, which nobody else did, right, in the Gospels, he's saying in another way that Jesus is fulfilling the promise to Abraham that when the Messiah comes, he's going to bless all the families of the earth. That's Genesis 12. That is, that is where we, we, we went through the entire book of Genesis, and we saw that. And so here's where it's unfolded. Here's where it comes to fruition. Um, in verse 15, we have a quote from Hosea 11 where, where Matthew says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And in verse 18, we have a quote from Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentations. Uh, a Rachel reaping, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. And, and, and in verse 23, we have the last reference from the Old Testament prophets confirming that Jesus has fulfilled in his birth all that was said would be done. And so Matthew does it over and over and over again for his Jewish, Jewish audience, confirming Jesus is the Messiah. That's why he included the birth story in his gospel, not just so we would have a birth story. It, it has a purpose, right? He, he's He's come. He is the Messiah. His main purpose is to confirm that Jesus is the great king. And so let's have that kind of in our head as, as we go forward. He has been confirmed by Matthew. Number two, contrast of, of two kings. And so what we see here in the rest of Matthew 2 is what, what, what Matthew does is he takes King Herod and we have Jesus. And we have kind of this stand beside, they stand beside each other, right? Herod the king only finds out about Jesus from the wise men. And you know, when they're following the star, the star doesn't take them straight to Bethlehem. It takes them to Jerusalem first. And then they study the scribes. They, they turn to the word of God. And they're like, oh, he's in Bethlehem. Because that's what the word says. And so then, then they set out. The star pops up again. And they, they follow it to Bethlehem. And so Herod didn't even know where they were. And so the Magi walk up into his palace. And imagine if you're Herod and you have people from the east coming to the palace asking a question like, where is the king of the Jews? And your answer would be, right here. <laughs> right? You're looking at him. Did you want to do some worshiping? You got some gifts, right? But they're not looking for him. They're looking for one that's been born. And so Herod's probably not enthused, especially being in the first century. And Herod is known to be a ruthless king. He had one of his ten wives murdered. He had three of his sons murdered so as to hold on to his throne. All right? He, he doesn't want anybody coming close to him and his absolute authority. It's recorded that he was paranoid and he eliminated all competition by any means necessary. Especially he was going to go after this supposed king. that He knew that there was a prophecy and so when Herod thinks this new king is going to take his kingdom, we read that it makes him furious, and he lashes out. And so look at the difference between Jesus and Herod. I've actually removed three or four of these just for the sake of time. But King Herod exercises deception and trickery to find this child that threatens to destroy him. In verse 7 and 8, bring me word, he's talking to the wise men, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You thinking that's what's going to happen? He's going to go and worship this new king? No. Herod wants to be seen as benevolent, thoughtful, caring. All the while, he's plotting murder in self-preservation and jealousy. That, that's Herod. 
What can I do to hold on to my kingdom? And King Jesus, Christ the King, speaks with truth and grace to his followers and friends. There's no deception and there's no trickery. King Herod, he wants to destroy his enemies and wipe them out in verse 13. His golden rule is do unto others before they do to you. Right? Let me go find him. Let me find this king. And Jesus is is a little different. Yet, while we were sinners, hostile to God and enemies of him, he laid down his life for us. He died for us, according to Romans 5.8. Just the opposite. So you see the difference in the earthly king and our divine king. King Herod goes to extraordinary lengths to secure his kingdom by murdering all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And we see that in verse 16 of chapter 2. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And in Bethlehem and the size of the town that was, that's probably 20 or 30 male babies. That's what scholars tell us. That's quite a length. Remember the last time that happened in the Bible? Moses, Pharaoh. I don't want anybody challenging the rule of Egypt. So we'll wipe out all the kids two and under. Moses leading a physical exodus. Jesus leading a spiritual exodus. You see how that, that attack, the tactics are the same. And instead of going to extraordinary lengths to secure a kingdom through death and murder, Christ the King goes to extraordinary lengths. He knows his executioners, and as they torture him, he cries out, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So we see two very different kingdoms and kings. And on first glance, you're just thinking, Jamie, you're just comparing those so I can see the difference between King Herod, bad, King Jesus, good. Yeah, that's very superficial, but that's true. That's not untrue. It's a little trickier than that. Yes, Jesus is a better king. Let's look at Herod. Herod is lashing out. His lashing out comes from his authority being challenged. A new king that might be on the throne. He's already dispatched anybody else and the other threats to his kingdom. It's his kingdom. Nobody tells him what to do in his kingdom. And nobody's going to do that. That's why it's good to be king. It's your kingdom. And another king is a threat to the good thing that he has going. So when the wise men come on the scene, they're saying, you may not be the king much longer. When the true king comes, you may have to give that up. And, and he knows the prophecies of the Messiah and, and that there can only be one king. I mean, there's only, you can only have one king. And that's where the smiling deception of, oh, where is he? Let me go and worship with him. Let me worship him too. And the eventual lashing out. That's where the lashing out comes from in the murder of, of the boys. All he could see is what he's losing in his kingdom. Not what the world and he were gaining. But here's the rub. Here's why we do that. We are Herod. The contrast is really between us and Jesus. We have a kingdom too. Your house, your car 
your family. You may have some unruly subjects if you have children, right? Retirement, vacations, friends, family. You are, in a sense, king of your world. You choose what to do. You have influence over your life. You have control over what happens, when you will do what. And if we're honest, we want the world to revolve around us. Our needs, our desires. It's our flesh. That's what we want. We don't tell people that. We do like, Herod, tell me where this child is so that I might come and worship him too and have another king take over my kingdom. <laughs> How do I plot this not to happen? It's what goes on in our hearts outside of Christ. But we do it in such a way with charm and grace. We do not naturally want to serve God or our neighbors. We want them to serve us. That's natural. That's, that's what just comes in before Christ comes and transforms our hearts. Listen to Luke, uh, Luke 14. When Jesus comes into your life, like King Herod, you will be challenged. Right? Ronald, did I put that one in there? Luke 14. I'll read it if I didn't. Um, if anyone comes to me, this is Luke 14, listen to this one. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, this is strong language, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's Jesus talking. If you don't hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters and your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Who does not, he, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's quite a claim. That's not really pulling them into the kingdom, Jamie. Jesus said that. Does that mean that I'm supposed to hate my parents? Finally, as a teenager, I get a pass. No. That's not at all what that means. It means by comparison. There is no allegiance, no relationship that comes anywhere close to what you feel for Jesus. Nothing. That the value that you place on the relationship with him, that he is your king, that you are not the king, that you bow to him. Nothing comes close. That's what that verse means. And that's what Jesus, when Jesus becomes the king of your life, the, the Lord of your life, your savior, this is actually what is happening. And if you understand the, de- the demands that Jesus has on your life, that your life is not your own, that you're bought with the price of his precious blood, that he is the one that tells us how to live. Here's where you find out you might be a little bit more like King Herod than you thought. And that there is a King Herod on the throne of your heart that doesn't want anyone telling you what to do or how to live. But like Herod... We want the wise men to know that we're kind and loving and cooperative and willing to concede to others. While inside, we just want to be kind of left alone to rule how we see fit. I deal with that a lot. Being a dad. Oh, you're messing my kingdom up. And so I end up getting frustrated. I think it's because my kids are not obeying me. Sometimes it's because they're making my life a little inconvenient. And so I have to back up. What's the motivation? Why am I doing this? Am I on the throne of my heart? Am I wanting everybody to serve me and bow down 
so that everything goes my way? Or do I realize that if Jesus really was born in a manger, if God himself, creator of the universe, was really incarnated in a baby, and he, then he really is king, and if he really is our king, then we give up our rights to our kingdom, and we learn to pray things like he taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done. And learning to see joy and the transformation of our desires become like his desires is called spiritual maturity. It's learning to love that and not hate that and to see the difference. That God knows better than we do, like I know better than my, my, for my children. You need to do this. This is what's going to help you stop eating candy and chocolate and all the things that you think are just awesome. You're going to be sick. But I don't want you to tell me what to do. I know, that's the nature of the flesh. It's a real thing. Paul calls it the flesh, and, he, and it battles the spirit. And that's what Romans 6 through 8 is all about. If you ever wonder why it's hard to read the Bible, if you ever wonder why I can't find time to pray, I just can't do it. I can't be vulnerable to others about my sin. If they find out how I really am on the inside, then they won't know me the way that I want them to know me, and then I'll be exposed. If you wonder why that's so hard, that's why. There's another king on your heart. It's you and not Jesus. And so I simply say, yield to Jesus. Realize how good and loving that he is. And that there's this demand to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there's this understanding, I can't do that. Why is he calling me to something that is impossible for me to do? Now you're starting to understand Christianity because you need him to do that and you're dependent on him. And you learn to walk in that and you learn to take daily bread. That's why it says pray for God, give us our daily bread, not tomorrow's bread because it goes bad if we read through Exodus. We know that. You can't store it up. You can't trust in it. You have to trust him. You can't trust in what you've got. You can't trust in anything outside of him. He wants you to learn how to follow him. Because it is about him and his character and his nature. And that's where worship comes from. And so we see a different kind of king that really reflects us to ourselves. And we wouldn't think that on the surface. And then finally, number three, the coming of a great king. We've seen through the Bible that through Matthew even, uh, that Matthew confirms Jesus as king, chapter 1, through the genealogy. And we, we traced him all the way from Abraham up. We've contrasted Jesus with an earthly king, King Herod. And then we've seen how he's contrasted with us. The incarnation reminds us of his approachability. But he's also the great king. His kingly role reminds us of his authority over all things, including evil. His ba- the baby, as he comes as a baby, he reminds us of how approachable and how we can now come into his presence, and he's not behind the veil anymore. And because of, uh, of Christ's work on the cross and only because of the blood of the Lamb, may we enter into his presence. And no longer is he in a, a, a tabernacle or in a temple, but he fills all heaven and earth, and he is in us, with us, abiding with us now. And yet... He's still the great king, transcendent above all, creator of the universe. 
sovereign Lord. A slaughtered lamb and a ferocious lion, right? A gracious shepherd and a fierce warrior. A loving savior and the snake crusher we've been looking for since Genesis 3. But, like I said from the beginning, talking about the bookshelf and how I thought I had it figured out and I couldn't put it together right, <laughs> right? It's, there's more to this nativity than meets the eye and I really wanted to hit that today and maybe spend most of our time there. The, nat- the nativity scene is familiar to us. There's Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus in the manger. I've got the little people set, right? I've got four kids. So I've got this little people set where it's all plastic. They're about that tall. And you've got the manger and the palm trees and uh, the camels and the oxen and the wise men. And depending on what you believe about the wise men being, you know, way. Sometimes we put them across the, the, the room because they weren't there yet till he was like two. You know, trying to be historically correct. I don't know. Like at school, my kids, they'll sing the We Three Kings of Orient Are, and they change the words to We E Kings because they want to be correct. It wasn't three because the Bible didn't say three, and yet at the same time, they're still at the manger. I don't understand. I mean, you know, pick one. Let's be consistent. But anyway, if you have a a nativity scene that has wise men, I'm good. I'll come to your house. We're we're, we're fine. It's not a point of contention. Open-handed belief. All right? Open-handed. That's probably my favorite new open-handed belief. You know, we'll, we'll find unity in that. All right, but we are familiar with it. There's shepherds, there's sheep, there's angels. And behind all that, here's what we don't usually see. There is a battle raging. Christmas, remember, is a declaration of war on sin and death and Satan. It was the opening shot of the great war between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. That's what Christmas is. And so I want to pull back the curtain between the physical and the spiritual for just a second and see what's really going on at the first Christmas. And so John, if you'll notice in the Gospel of John, he doesn't have a a nativity scene. He put his in Revelation. And so Revelation 12 is John's nativity. And so let's just read just the first six verses. That could be like a whole sermon series, but we're not going to do that. So let's read together. Chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, And behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is John's nativity. It doesn't focus as much on the birth and the death and the burial of Jesus or the resurrection as much as it does the ascension, the birth and the ascension. He covers that in chapter 5 of Revelation. It's in there. Beautifully done. In fact, we're going to appeal to it in just a second. But 
This is his nativity. And verses, if you keep reading, verses 7 through 12 give an account of the war. And verses 13 through 17 give us an account of Satan's attempt to destroy the people of God. If you can't get the child, he's going to go after the church and the followers of Jesus. And so in this nativity, we see two signs. There are no mangers, no shepherds. We see a pregnant woman, number one, beautifully dressed in in royalty. And number two, we see a great red dragon or a fiery red dragon. And the description of the woman draws, in verses 1 and 2, draws from Genesis 37. I don't remember when we... I'm using all this Genesis just because we went through it, right? In Genesis 37, it's when Joseph had his coat of many colors, and he had the dream. And in the dream, the sun and the moon and the 12 stars are bowing down to him, which is the line of Christ. And so we have this picture here in Revelation of this woman that's dressed like this vision, which lets us know that she represents Israel. Covenant faithful Israel. And many times in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as a mother giving birth, like seven or eight times. And so here, she's in pain, the pain of labor again. Not a silent night. It's a great song. Most labor is not silent, right? At least the ones I was a part of were not. And so she, the woman represents faithful Israel, which is which produces the line uh, through the line of Judah, Christ, the Messiah, the baby. In verses three through five, we get a second sign: the great red dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. Verse nine, we get all four of those names just in one verse. It's like a, just a quick theology course in that one, one verse. And his tail sweeps away a third of the stars in heaven, seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. You remember seven is the complete. So there's this picture of this complete evil. And these are fantastical kind of pictures of reality, of what's going on behind the scenes during the first Christmas. And so the dragon stood before the woman, waiting for the birth of the child to devour him. This is not a new posture for the enemy or for Satan. Think about it. Think back to Genesis 3.15. Remember, the enemy comes, uh, uh, sin comes in the world, death follows sin. And then God is speaking in Genesis 3.15 saying to the serpent, he will crush your head. You know, enmity I will put between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And so the whole time, the offspring of the line of Christ and the offspring of the serpent fight for the rest of the timeline of the Bible of history. And so here we kind of see that culmination of the child, the one they've been looking for. They thought, oh, it's going to be Cain. No, I mean, oh, it's going to be Abel. No, it's not Abel. And so there's this constant attack on the line that's going to produce the Messiah. The declaration of the one that was coming to make everything right, to crush the serpent. Ever since that declaration was made in Genesis 3.15, Satan has been working through operatives to prevent the male child from coming. Think about that. Cain kills Abel. 1 John 3.12 says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
Right? We gotta get the line out. How can I, how can I, as Satan, how can Satan do that, right? Pharaoh kills all the Hebrew baby boys in Exodus 1 to prevent an uprising. Uh, Satan moves King Saul to try and kill David multiple times. Uh, he moved Haman in the book of Esther to wipe out the entire population of the Jews. All the minor prophets were constantly targeted. Jesus says, I sent you prophet after prophet and you killed them. You would not listen, right? He moved Herod to kill Jesus by wiping out all the baby boys in Bethlehem, just like he did with Moses under Pharaoh. This is the picture, the physical picture of of this giant red dragon seeking the child to devour the Messiah so that his end will not come. Chapter 12 in Revelation is basically a picture of time. Here's what's happened. Boom, summary. And since Satan couldn't prevent his coming, now as the great red dragon, he waits for the child to be born to devour him. David Platt says, we can get this quote on the screen, says the, the birth of Christ on that day in Bethlehem inaugurated the death of this ancient serpent. Just as it has been promised back in Genesis 3. The birth of Christ declared the death of the ancient serpent. The death of Christ defamed the adversary. You see the war that, that's going on. I want you to see it's, it's bigger. <laughs> it's so much bigger. Christmas is the declaration of war on the enemy. The cross was, was the decisive battle where the final outcome was settled and made clear. The enemy knows that he only has a short time now. And like Herod, he's lashing out. Seeking whom he can devour. Yet he's been defamed cross. You see the picture. He came as a baby, but never forget that he is a conquering king. And we hold those two in tension. You can't release either one of them. Oh, he's approachable. I can just run in front of him anytime. He loves me no matter what I do. Oh, but he's a conquering king and he's holy and he's righteous. And the only way you get in front of him and can't approach him is because of the blood of Christ that's been spilled through sacrifice that is beyond measure. And when you realize that, your approach method is different. There's a reverence and there's an awe and there's a thankfulness and there's, I don't know, deserve this, but I, I can't believe that I have this. And how are you, my father, and you're not just a judge? And how is it not mechanical that, yes, I get the court system and Jesus paid the price, so now you can go free and you will tolerate me, but you will not love me. But you do, you're a father and you do both. And you see how the ten, there are tensions that the Bible holds and teaches both and doesn't release either one of them. They're both simultaneously true and glorious. And so they need to be held on and loved, right? And so he comes as a baby and he's a conquering king who has defeated death, sin, and Satan. And he is alone. He is alone worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals and because he was slain by his blood and he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation to make them a kingdom. And our response is simply like Revelation 5. What do they say? With a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You see this response. See, worship is the best and the normal response to Christmas. 
It's the opening shot. It's the war that wins. It's the victory. There's so much more than just a manger scene or, or, or an innocent child. Oh, I love the innocence of the child. Or, or oh, it's a peaceful winter's night. It's, it's more than that. It's about all of history culminating in a cosmic war that we see in Revelation 12, 7 through 12, where the angels are fighting against the dragon, the ancient serpent. The accuser and his angels are defeated by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony of the saints, the faithfulness of the saints as they follow their their Savior, right? And and the dragon, Satan, was thrown down. It says, now, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. And the response to this in verse 12 is simply, therefore rejoice. 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 (laughs) Shout it out. Nothing will overcome you. Not even death. Nothing permanent can hurt you. The best the the enemy has is a temporary weapon to paralyze you, to keep you quiet, to make you feel defeated, to make you seem like you don't matter, like you have no purpose, like you've messed up too much, like you've gone too far, like you chose the wrong path in life. If he can just take that, sink it in, and then will do the best he can to diminish God's glory for a little while. That's all he's got. And even in that, we see the woman fleeing. And God, and, and, and the picture is he gives her two wings the wings of eagles, and he, he gives her provision and protection in the wilderness. And that, that's not, he didn't hand her two wings so she could fly off. That's Exodus 19, verse 4, where it says to, to Israel, who's coming out of this first Exodus, hey, you know what, and I bore you on, on, as, on eagle's wings to safety into the wilderness. It's a picture of safety amongst difficulty. This is... How you have a merry Christmas. By dwelling on the victory of God. I love lights and I love trees and I love all the, the stuff. I love it because it reminds me of this. That doesn't remind me of trees. This reminds me. See, trees, I think of this. We've got to flip the paradigm. You dwell on the victory of God. You take your eyes off of yourself. Jamie, that's harsh. It's true. We've got to have that. We've got to be like Isaiah and Isaiah 6, where, where we see God and we immediately go down. I do this. I'm a navel gazer. I look down. And, oh, woe is me. What have I done? Stop and look up. It's amazing what's going on behind the manger. Take your eyes off yourself and your situation and focus on his glory and his beauty and his strength. Read Revelation 5 and the triumph of his majesty. This is why angels sing. They don't sing because you're pretty good at singing or you're, you've been good this way. You read your Bible. They're not singing because of that. They're singing because of the victory at Calvary. And they're amazed at it and how he, God came as a baby and he died. They long to look into that. And they... Wow, that's amazing. All glory and power and honor and praise and wisdom and glory. May that be to you forever and ever and ever. We have a great hope even through difficult trials and suffering. It's not only why angels sing, it's why we sing and can sing. And like Paul in a prison can sing. 
We're reminded of that. So every time that we decorate trees and every time that we hang greenery that represents life or we place lights on our houses that light up the darkness when we gather for parties or when we give gifts or we're generous, we're doing what Joy to the World's chorus says. We're repeating the sounding joy. That's what it looks like. What does it mean when you say repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding You do that. You think about it. You repeat it in how you live and what you say. You repeat it over and over again, just like the chorus of the angels. It says, Christ our King, the Deliverer has come. And we celebrate God's victory over Satan and good over evil and light over dark. The kingdom of light. This is how we fight for joy at Christmas, when Christmas may be the most depressing time in your life. When you say, no, that's not going to win. Jesus is one. And yes, it's a difficult circumstance, and this did happen on this Christmas. Christ, help me fight. To see joy in Jesus and his victory and not our circumstances, to see Jesus. We look at Revelation, and there's so much more to be thankful for than we can see. And it's why we must have a Merry Christmas. And we can say something like Nehemiah. I don't know if you know Nehemiah. He's the guy that went back to help rebuild the wall that had been torn down after the invasion and the exile and the temple was torn down and the people were torn down and the wall, everything was torn down. And it was a day of feasts and they just read the word and the word convicted them and they were all just convicted and, and feeling terrible about their sin that they had turned away from God and they were mourning. And here's what Nehemiah says on the great day of feasts. This is a hard one. I'm learning a lot about celebrating He says, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send the portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and not to be grieved. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so we rejoice that the victory is secured by Christ. We rejoice that the gospel is still going forward after 2,000 years and spreading around the world, we rejoice that soon King Jesus will come back. And we look to that. And he's going to set everything right forever. And we rejoice that the accuser has been put down by Christ. And when he comes to you during the holiday season, and he accuses you of being a grievous sinner, Uh, you're worthless, you do this, you always mess this up, or you're not going to have the right Christmas, or you're not going to have everybody get together and it's not going to be a Hallmark movie Christmas. You're not going to be able to do it. You're going to fail. When he comes to you and says you're a terrible sinner, you don't retreat to excuses, you don't blame shift, and you don't shrink back, and you look him square in the eye, and you say you are right. But I have a Savior that's greater than all my sin. I have one who's worthy to open the scroll, worthy of all worship, and one to whom soon you will answer. And then you shout victory to King Jesus. Victory to King Jesus, conqueror of cosmic battles and personal ones. He's the great king. Merry Christmas is what you say. Amen. So let's pray. We've got three... Directives on the board. That's not a board, it's a TV. Well, you, you guys know we pray every week. 
So this is just simple. Pray for God to dethrone the king of your heart if it's anything or anyone other than Jesus. You've got to pray for that. That doesn't happen. You don't default and just kind of drift into holiness. You know that. He's got to do a transforming work in our hearts. And here's the good news. He wants to. And he can. And I've seen it. Number two, we're going to pray for a bigger understanding of Christmas to celebrate and worship our king this year. That was an easy one. And number three, enjoy God right now. That was a short sermon. That's the shortest one I've done in a long time, and it's not because of that Babylon B article everybody's sending me. <laughs> I just thought of that. <laughs> it was just short, so there's some time for you to enjoy God right now by proclaiming to Jesus, telling You are the victor. You are the great savior that was promised. You are the conquering king. All creation longs to see you. Just take some time and enjoy who he is where you're sitting. Worship team's just going to play a little bit. We'll just take two or three minutes. And then I'm going to close in in, in a prayer for that time. If you want to keep praying through that, keep praying. Because we're going to do the Lord's Supper right at that. I'll explain that if you haven't been here before. But take some time and respond to what God is doing in your heart. Holy Spirit, would you move among us? Let's pray together, just just kind of where you are.